we'll begin in well, I said verse 7 of chapter 4. <clears throat> says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. We'll stop reading there. Back to verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I know, like I said, we talked about this briefly uh, last week, this particular verse. Uh, but there, there's still a lot of Christians, uh, a lot of believers, a lot of people on their way to heaven that are not fully submitted to God. We, we hold things back from God. And I've been, I've been guilty of it. If you're honest with yourself, you've been guilty of it uh, too, uh, that, that we're not fully submitted. We might think that we are, we might say that we are, but if you look deep down in your heart and you think on it real hard, you'll find something that you have not completely given over to God. And once again, every one of us uh, are, are or have been in that boat at some point. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In submitting ourselves uh, to God, that should, uh, that should make it two times, five times, ten times, a hundred times more easy to resist the devil. But because because we are not fully submitted to God. It makes it harder for us to resist the devil. It says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I can't remember who it was. I don't remember if it was a commentator or a preacher or what the case was, but I remember reading one time that, uh, that uh, fleeing temptation, there were, there were no uh, land speed records that were ever set by Christians fleeing temptation or fleeing from the devil. And there's no real lines to read between there. Uh, you know, we, we don't flee. In fact, a lot of times we hang around. And sometimes we'll look at it as us suffering for the cause of Christ in doing so. We'll say, well, I'm going to hang around this person just a little while longer. I'm going to vex my righteous soul, such as the way that the Bible says that Lot uh, did when he hung out there in, in Sodom. It says that he vexed his righteous soul. And doing so, folks, I don't want to vex myself. I don't want to be vexed. I don't want to be tormented. I don't want to hang around sin. We need to flee from sin. And, and folks, this, uh, and, and this is talking about the resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The problem is we want to hang around with the devil and the devil's crowd and the devil's deeds and the devil's doings instead of fleeing from the devil and those deeds and those doings. And we think that if we hang around for just a little while longer and we shine our light and we be the salt that God's called us to be, folks, sometimes the best way to resist the devil is to flee from the devil. There's nothing wrong with running from the devil. There ain't a thing in the world wrong with that. I mean, you read, the, you read in the scripture, Paul wrote to flee youthful lusts. That means don't hang around where those youthful lusts are. You run from them. Run from those lusts. And it's not just that. We need to run from sin. Run the other direction. If you think it could get you in trouble, if you think it could affect your walk with the Lord, if you think it could hinder your prayer life, you need to flee from it. Flee from it. Get rid of it. Toss it out of your life. 
And every one of us does. This goes back to the whole submit yourselves therefore unto God. We're not fully submitted. We're not. And that's why we have such a hard time fleeing. Because we latch on to those things. We like to have our little pet sins. We like to pick them up. And we like to stroke them on the head. We like to pet them. We like to coddle them. We like to keep them around. We say, well, it's not murder. Well, it's not adultery. Well, it's not this and it's not that. It's just a little sin. Folks, sin is sin is sin. And any sin in your life unrepented of, any sin that you keep hanging out in your life, any sin that you know is in some deep, dark crevice of your heart, it might be covered in cobwebs. It might be covered in dust, but it's still there. Any of those can hinder your walk with God. Once again, James is writing to Christians. He's writing to believers, and I'm talking to Christians this morning and saying the same things that James was 2,000 years ago. If we submit ourselves to God, it'll be a whole lot easier uh, for us to resist the devil. And if we resist him, I mean, what, what is resistance? What is resistance? We think of resistance of standing firm, putting our hands on our hips, flexing our muscles. We think of that as resistance. We think of fighting back. No, we flee from sin. If we resist the devil, he will flee. You put on that whole armor of God that's talked about in the book of Ephesians, it would be a whole lot easier to resist. And listen, you can run in that armor. It, it might be a little bit difficult to run in it, but you can run in it. You run away from the devil. You run away from temptation. Run away from sin. You run away from the devil, and he will run the other direction. There's nothing wrong with running. I ain't saying we shouldn't stand our ground as Christians. I'm not saying that at all. But too many times, as I've already said, we will sit around or stand around and thinking that we're doing the right thing, and we're not. We got to use discernment in resisting the devil. We got to use discernment and and fleeing from the devil. Sometimes we have to stand. Sometimes we have to stand there. We have to we have to uh, take some of those fiery darts that come our way. But more often than not. We don't have to stand there. We can run the other direction. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Sometimes the best resistance that we can have, sometimes the best defense that we've got is running. Running. I'm not saying running like a coward. You run to God. You run to God in prayer. You run to God with your concerns. You run to God with, with everything. I'm not saying you're turning around like a coward with your tail tucked between your legs and you go and you bury yourself into your head in the sand like an ostrich. That's not what I'm saying at all. You run to God. You flee to God. He's your only protection. Why else would the psalmist refer to him as this high tower? Why would he refer to him as his rock? Why would he refer to him as his fortress? <laughs> because God was his defense. Folks, we can't defend ourselves against the devil. We can resist the devil. The Bible said that it tells us to plainly right here in black and white to resist the devil. But sometimes our best resistance is to run from the devil. We run from the devil and run to God. I guarantee you he will run to us. He will flee from us because he is no match for God. He is a match for you and I. Whether we're born again or not, we are no, no match for the devil. But God is. God absolutely is. Amen. Verse 8, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
This is a hard verse to swallow considering the fact that James is writing to Christian people. It's a very hard verse to swallow. But that's exactly who he's writing to. It says, draw nigh to God. That goes right back to verse 7, what we just read. As far as submitting yourselves unto God. If we're submitting ourselves unto God, it's going to be completely natural for us to draw nigh to God. But folks, listen, this is in a specific order here, and it's in that order for a reason. God will let us float around. God let Lot hang around in Sodom. He let him hang around there. Even though the Bible says that Lot was just, and even though it says that his soul was righteous, God allowed him to hang out there in Sodom, where he knew that he had no business, where he knew that he shouldn't have been to begin with. People say, uh, I've heard people preach and teach that Lot's in hell. The Bible says that his soul was righteous. And that he was just. Listen, Lot was shining a light of some kind. The man had two virgin daughters in a in a city uh, that was known for its sexual sin. The man had two virgin daughters. So don't tell me there wasn't a light in his house of some kind. It may have been dim. It may have just been a flicker. It may have just been a spark once in a while. But there was a light there somehow. He wasn't drawing nigh to God. He wasn't drawing up close to God. Draw nigh to God. That's the first part of that. And he will draw nigh unto you. We draw nigh unto God. And then God draws nigh unto us. And if God is here, and we are here, and we're drawing this way, and when he's drawing this way, it's going to happen a whole lot sooner rather than God having to get our attention at some point down the line like he did Lot, and like he did so many other examples we can use in Scripture. We're drawing closer together at the same time. We're going to meet a whole lot sooner as opposed to one of us moving, uh, uh, moving at a time. But it says draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. It doesn't say he might. It doesn't say he may. It doesn't say if he feels like it. You draw nigh to God and I promise you with the authority of God's word, he will draw nigh unto you. And then it says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Why is this in the same verse with drawing out of God? Because that's how we do it. We repent. We cleanse our hands. We purify our hearts. And listen, once again, this is saved folks. It is impossible for a lost sinner to cleanse their hands and to purify their hearts. Only God can do that in the process of regeneration by the work of the Holy Ghost and by, by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Only God can do that for a lost sinner. But several times over in Scripture, we are told, and James says it in James chapter 1, to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Here he's saying to cleanse our hands, for us to cleanse our hands, for us to purify our hearts. But yet we go to God. God, I need a I need a, a fresh coating of the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away my sin. God, I need this and God, I need that. And we are told we must purify our own hearts. How do we do that? Y'all have heard me say it before. You read this. You read this. This is your labor. This is where you wash before you go into service for God. 
The laver was the place in the temple where the priests had to go. After the sacrifice was made, they'd walk in the temple. The brazen altar was to their right. They'd make the sacrifice. They'd get blood on their hands. Then they went to the laver, and they would have to wash their hands. They would have to wash their feet. Then they could go back to, uh, to into the service of God. Then they could go burn their incense. Then they could go, go do these things in service to God. But only in that order. This is your labor. This is where you wash. This is where you are cleansed. As a born-again Christian, the only place we can be cleansed as a lost person is at the foot of the cross in the blood of Jesus Christ. But as a saved person, this word is what will cleanse you. This word is what will keep you clean. That's why we've got to keep our noses in the scripture. If we don't, folks, we ain't got much defense against the devil. We don't know how to resist him. Three times when Jesus Christ was tempted, the three the three that are recorded in Scripture, he was in the wilderness for 40 days, and I promise you he was tempted more than three times. But the three times that we have in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, every time he said, it is written. It is written. He went back to the Old Testament Scriptures. Eighty times throughout the Bible we see the words, it is written. Sixty-three of those times is in the New Testament talking about the Old Testament. Yet we don't want to read this book. And that's our greatest defense. This is our greatest defense against wickedness, against sin, against our own lust, against the lust of others. It's our greatest defense against the devils. It's our greatest defense against demons. It's our greatest defense is this word. Amen. This is how we cleanse our hearts. Or this is how we purify our hearts. And this is how we cleanse our hands. James called them sinners and double-minded. The church them in that. How do we how do we do these things? By reading the word, by prayer, by asking God to reveal things to us in His Word. Not for not for new revelation. Folks, there'll be no new revelation given. God will reveal things to you in His Word that's already been revealed here. That He'll show you things in His Word. But there will be no new revelation. This is a closed canon of Scripture. It's not to be added to. And that's a whole other subject. We ain't going to get off on that. I ain't teaching on that. But cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to heaviness. What's he saying in this verse here, in verse uh, number 9? He's saying repent. He's saying repent. Be afflicted. Why would he, why would he want us to be afflicted? What does it mean to be afflicted? You're hurt. I mean, that's what affliction is. You're hurt. You're sick. He says, be, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Why does James want me to be sad? Who is he talking about in the verse before this? He's talking to the church about them being double-minded and about them being sinners. He's saying, be afflicted, mourn and weep. Over what? Over your double-mindedness. Over your sinning. Over your sins. Folks, our sins should grieve us. If it grieves the Holy Ghost of God, it should grieve us. But too many times it doesn't. Why is that? Because we're callous to it. And because we like it. I mean, that's plain and simple. You want to know why lost people don't get saved? Because they're in love with their sins. That's why. They're in love with their sins. You want to know why Christians can't pray to God the way that they would like to? You want to know why we don't have the prayer warriors that we had 100, 200, 300, and 500 years ago? Because we're more in love with our sin now than we were back then. That's why. 
because we are sinners and because we are double-minded and because we haven't fully submitted ourselves unto God. And that finger points at me, too. I'm not trying to make y'all feel bad. This book makes me feel bad. And, and, and it humbles us. It shouldn't humble us. If James don't humble you, there's some serious checking up needs to be done in your Christian walk. James will humble us. He says, be afflicted more and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. This is his call to repentance. He's saying, you sinners and you double-minded people, how can you sit around laughing? How can you sit around joyful knowing that you are the way that you are? You need to repent. That's what James is getting at here. He says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Once again, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. I would ten times, a hundred times, rather humble myself as to have Almighty God humble me. It's a whole lot easier to humble ourselves as opposed to having God do it for us. I've been humbled by God. And that's a, that's a fortune that I don't wish on anybody. Y'all probably have too if you've walked with God any amount of time. Y'all humble us down. Y'all humble us down. One of the very things in Proverbs chapter 6 that God hates is a proud look. He says that God hates that. He says these six things that the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him, and a proud look is one of those things. God hates pride. And, there, and really, in a Christian, there's no place for pride. I'm not saying you can't be proud of your children for an accomplishment. I'm not saying you can't be proud of your husband or your wife or, or whatever the case is. That, that's a whole different type of pride. But pride in thinking that, uh, that I don't need to repent. Pride in thinking my hands are clean when they're filthy. Pride in thinking that I'm not double-minded when you are. That's the kind of pride that God hates. And every sin, regardless of how you look at it, every sin that you can think of, whether it's adultery, whether it's alcohol, whether it's pills, whether, whether it's lying, thieving, every sin, in one way or another, you can stretch all the way back to pride. If you think pride ain't a problem, ask Lucifer what it got him. You read the book of Isaiah. You read the book of Ezekiel. You, you read what pride, what him being lifted up unto him that got him cast out of heaven and a third of the angels with him. It was pride that did that. People say, well, what's alcohol got to do with pride? Well, it's either too much pride or not enough pride. There, there's a happy median there. There's a happy median. If you got too much, you'll think, I deserve this. I deserve to get wasted tonight or this weekend or whatever the case is. And a lack of pride would be like, I'm not worth anything. Either way, it boils back to pride. Adultery is the same way. I deserve to be treated better. I deserve this and I deserve that. That's pride. Every sin that you can think of, you can point it straight back to pride. That was the original sin. And every sin thereafter can be linked directly to pride. It may, it may take a... Uh, take a, an off path somewhere. It may go to the left, it may go to the right, it may extend around, come in a back way, but either way, it can be linked directly to pride. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. We must humble ourselves. And if we humble ourselves, now listen, this is true 
biblical repentance that we're talking about here. Humbling yourself in the sight of the Lord. And he shall lift you up. Peter says, humble yourselves in the sight of God and he shall exalt you in due time. Basically the same, same thought, same principle, just worded a little bit different. But we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt us. He will lift us up. If we lift ourselves up, folks, that's pride. That's not humbling ourselves. There's too many, too many folks, I'm talking about within the church and I'm also talking about born-again believers, that will lift themselves up. They'll think, boy, I've done good. Boy, look what I've done. Look what I'm going to be doing. Look what I'm doing for the house of God. Look what I'm doing for the work of God. Look what I'm doing in the choir. Look what I'm doing in the pulpit. Look what I'm doing teaching. Folks, that's pride. That is pride. It should be a humbling thing for a man to step in a pulpit. Or for a man to stand right here and teach. Or teach from the pulpit. It should be a humbling thing to sing the songs of Zion from the choir loft or from wherever you are at. It's a humbling thing. Why is that? Because once upon a time you wasn't saved. Once upon a time you couldn't sing about how God redeemed you. But now you can stand up there and say because of the work of Jesus Christ. Because God came to where I was and because... God showed me who I was and where I was headed and because he cleansed my soul, because he made me whole, now I can sing about redemption. I can sing about the blood of the Lamb and I can praise God for these things. It's a humbling thing to do anything in the service of God. That was the Pharisees' problem was pride. They would say, look what I'm doing. Look what I'm doing. They would make themselves look emaciated. They would, they would throw powder and sand and everything else on their faces, make themselves look thinner than what they were and say, I've been fasting for weeks. And it was all to get the get the, the look of men to say, boy, look what he's doing for God. He's really seeking God. And Jesus condemned them for those practices. Condemned them for wanting the high seats. Condemned them for wanting the, the, the chief seats and wanting to be heard on the street corner saying their big, long, uh, exotic prayers that they were making unto God. Jesus condemned them for doing that. And why did they do it? For pride. For pride. These are the same people Jesus said uh, they would strain the net, they'd choke on the camel. That's, that's something that don't really make a whole lot of sense to us unless unless you look into the history of what Jesus was saying, that was a man-made thing that they'd done. They would strain their water to make sure that it was pure before they, before they drank it. And it's no, uh, no big thing that that's also a practice of Buddhists and Sikhs and Sikhism. Sikhs will walk along, which is an extension of Buddhism. They'll walk along with a broom in front of them, sweep the path, making sure they don't step on them. Step on them. Ant or a roach, or any other critter that might be in the path before them. I ain't saying they do it out of pride. They're, they're worshiping their own God. They're worshiping nature in doing that. But the Pharisees, when they would do these things, it was all out of pride. They wanted the look of men. They wanted the honor of men. Folks, I want the honor of God. I want God to look down and say, he's done well. I don't care if anybody thinks that I teach well. I don't care if anybody thinks that I preach well. I don't care if anybody thinks that I sing well. 
or look good for that matter. What matters to me is that I do what I feel like God has called me to do. And if I do that, then all will be well with me and God. All be well with her. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother speaketh evil of the law and judges the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Again, I can't emphasize it enough, writing to Christians, this makes me think of the famous words of Jesus Christ, famous for the world, famous especially for lost folks. Judge not, lest you be judged. Judge not that you be not judged. That's what they want to throw at us, folks. James isn't telling us here that we cannot be judges. No more than Jesus Christ was telling us in the Sermon on the Mount that we cannot be judges. You read the Sermon on the Mount sometime when Jesus Christ said, Judge not lest thou be judged. Just a few verses after that, Jesus Christ said, Cast not your pearl before the swine, neither give that which is holy unto the dogs. How are we to determine who's a dog and who's swine if we're not casting judgment of some kind? What else did Jesus say? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. We are to be judges. But we can't do it hypocritically. We can't be a hypocritical judge. We can't judge someone for lying when we've lied ourselves. Now, that being said, within the assembly of God, within the church, if someone is just caught in bold-faced lie, hey, there's entire chapters written in this book right here that discusses what's to be done with a Christian in a local assembly that is sinning and that, that it is known that they are sinning. Entire chapters, but we ignore them. We ignore those chapters. We want to go straight to the excommunication. We want to go straight to casting them out that Satan might have his way with them. We want to skip the other parts of it. That's not how Jesus wanted it done. That's not how God wants it done. That's not how Scripture says it is to be done. James says, Speak not evil of one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his judges. His brother speaketh evil of the law and judges the law. But if, the, but if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. In other words, he said, if you're the one that judges the law, you're putting yourself in the place of God. And he goes on into that in the very next verse. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Now, once again, James isn't saying because it would go contrary to the rest of Scripture. James isn't saying that we cannot judge, period. Folks, we have to judge. We have to judge. If I got up here and said there's five different ways that you can get to heaven, you all should be making a judgment and saying there is one way into heaven. You just told a lie. You told something that's contrary to Scripture, and that is you being a judge. I'd never get up here and tell you all that. I'm using that as a very uh, dramatic example. But if I were to say that, I've got to use discernment, and I've got to use, or you have got to use discernment, and you have got to use judgment in that. That's judging. Amen. If I get up here and tell you anything that's contrary to what this book says, and, and you all don't 
say anything about it, you'll get in just as much trouble for that as you would uh, judging me for it. And don't take my word for it. I got scripture to back that up. We're going to read it right here in just a minute. The church is encouraged to, the church is commanded to, the church is charged to judge people according to their lives. I'm talking about it, judge people according, judge Christians, judge people within the assembly according to their lives. They're charged to do that. Paul, y'all want to go ahead and flip over there, First Corinthians chapter 5. Paul charged the Corinthians with this very thing. First Corinthians chapter 5. It's not a very long chapter. I'm not going to read the whole thing. First few verses anyway. First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 says, Paul writes, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as it as it as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed, might be taken away from among you. For I ver for I verily, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In short, there was fornication going on in the Corinthian church. And it was quite disgusting. Paul says it ain't even like the Gentiles would do it. It ain't even like the, the unbelievers would do it. But there's fornication among you. And you're puffed up. You're proud. He says, and you haven't removed him from your assembly yet. And Paul says, even though I'm not there, I'm not present yet, I have passed judgment on this man. And he is condemning the Corinthian church for not passing judgment on this person that was within the assembly of the believers of Jesus Christ. We have got to pass judgment sometimes. Folks, when, when church discipline takes place, and, and it don't take place often, but in my personal opinion, I don't think it takes place often enough if we're going by Scripture. But when church discipline takes place, that is judgment that is going on. And God expects His people to judge one another. Trust me. Trust me. You come in here sometime, or if I came in here, I'll use me as an example instead. If I came in here and I was loudmouth and I was boisterous and I was prideful and, and I mean about scripture or about God or about my works for God, or if I came in here and I was loudmouth and I was boisterous about what I've done the night before, say, say I went out to the bar the night before, and I come in here and I was bragging about the good time that I had at the bar, and you all did nothing about it, you would be in just as much condemnation as I would be, because you're not judging that. Keep on reading 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Paul here is saying, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. He's saying, one little bit of that leaven is going to get in your assembly and it's going to corrupt the entire thing. 
It's going to corrupt the entire church. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you an epistle not in the company to not not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world, or with covetous or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I, I have written unto you to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or extortioner, or such an one, no, such an one, know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? Read that again. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? Do, you, do not ye judge them that are within the church, that are within the body, that are within the local assembly of the Corinthian church he's talking about? And he says, but them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. It says, those that are without the church, those that are outside, those that are not part of the assembly of God, that are not a believer in Jesus Christ, God will deal with them. But those that are within the church body, those that are, that are part of the body of Christ, those that are uh, supposedly sanctified and consecrated, those that have been saved, we are to judge them. That's not my words. That's Paul's words. And I'll take Paul's words over my thoughts on the matter any day. Paul says, we are to judge those that are within the congregation. God's word says that we are to judge those that are within the congregation. Back to James. Once again, James not saying, don't judge. That's the first thing the world will throw at you. It's been thrown at Vern, street preaching. I know it's been thrown at me. That's the first thing they'll say, well, you're being awfully judgy. I tell them all the same thing. You're already judged. I'm not judging you. I'm not condemning you. The word of God condemns them. All I'm doing is warning them. I'm warning them of the wrath to come. I'm warning them of the same wrath that I was under at one time. I want them to be saved just as I am now. I want them to be consecrated for God's use just as I am. I'm not being judgmental and getting out there and preaching against sin. And that's the first thing that a lot of people want to throw at the preacher that gets up and condemns sin, especially if he spits out specific sins from the pulpit. Hey, folks, if it's sin, it's sin, and it needs to be called out. I don't care if it's one of your pet sins or not. Now, if a man gets in the pulpit and he preaches on one specific sin because he knows that there's one person in that congregation that's committing that one specific sin, that is striking. And that's condemned in the word of God. But if he's preaching against sin and a specific sin comes out and that preacher may not have any idea that somebody in the congregation is guilty of that specific sin, you ain't striking. Ain't no preacher striking in doing that. But I've seen men do that. I've seen men do it. Don't know that, that someone in particular is within the congregation that morning. And they'll preach an entire sermon, entire sermon against gambling or against drinking or uh, 
sometimes against things that ain't even sin. Folks, that's striking. That, that, that's striking, and that's condemned in the Word of God. James says, speak not evil of one of another, brethren. Shame on James for having to tell the church that. Shame on me for having to reiterate it to the church. Or not shame on, not shame on James or me, but shame on the church. Shame on me for being who James was talking to. Speak not evil of one another. This is the gospel that James is more or less getting at, and other things. But the gossip, this is one of the most prevalent sins within the church in 2022. And that was pretty prevalent in James' day, too. Speak not evil of one another. Folks, this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. God says in the book of Leviticus, not, not to go up and down the street, not to go to your neighbor's house, telling everything else about another neighbor. Don't do that. Don't be a tellbearer. Don't be one of these people. You know where the word gossip comes from? It actually comes from an Anglo-Saxon word called Godson. Godson was the person that was the sponsor, basically, of baby's baptism. And as that baby grew up, that Godson would know everything about that baby's life, on into adolescence, on into uh, toddler, and on into early childhood, all the way through teenage years. But it became that the godson would not only know everything about it, about that child or about that adult that they got up, they would tell everything about that child. And that's where the word gossip comes from. Because we tell. Well, even if it's true, sometimes it's best just to keep your mouth shut. We've got so many problems within churches. I know one church right now is very dear to me, and they've got their share of problems. And if they want that church to continue on, and they want that church to prosper, and I ain't talking about monetarily, I'm talking about spiritually, they'll keep their mouth shut about the goings on that's going right now, and that's happening right now. If anything like that happens here, it's best just to keep your mouth shut. Why? You can gossip to one person. When that one person goes to somebody else, I promise you the tale's going to change. There'll be something in it change. There'll be something added. Or there'll be something taken away. Either way, it'll be a bad deal. And it'll go on from person to person to person. One person will tell one. That person will tell two. Those two will tell three apiece. And before you know it, the entire community knows about it. And nobody wants anything to do with the local assembly. It will destroy it. Brethren, speak not evil one of another, brethren. Once again, this, this just emphasizes he's talking to believers in Christ. Speak not evil of one another. Uh, he that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. I won't speak evil of the law. God wrote that law. And uh, if thou judge the law, there are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who art thou that judges another? Who are we to judge another? Once again, I, I can't really emphasize it enough. Enough, I could read you some other scriptures, but I'm not going to. But I've shown you in the scripture that we are to judge within the church. We're commanded to. We're charged to. It's not judge, not period. But we judge, right? 
Christ, and I can continue on, but I shall not. Uh, anybody got any questions or comments?